0: All right, Uh, so now, get started in three, two,
1: one.
0: Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Rich. It's a pleasure to be with you today on uh, National School Nurse Day. And for all of those school nurses and nurses out there, I'd just like to say a very fond, hello, nurse. <laughs> it's
0: a Animaniacs reference, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Thank you, Yakim. You are correct, sir.
0: All right. So, Tom, one of the big things happening this week was Microsoft Build. It's one of their big conferences. Microsoft has, like, what, three, four big conferences. Uh, This one is developer-focused, but I thought there was some really interesting stuff. So I thought we would dedicate our news or NAS segment to it. Does that sound like a plan?
1: I like this plan. Let's build it.
0: All right. If thank you for the pun, and if you had said no, I had no other options. All right. First up, uh, Microsoft made IntelliCode generally available. This is different from IntelliVision. For those of you interested, it's an AI coding assistant with support for C sharp, uh, uh, Java, JavaScript, TypeScript, and Python. The AI was trained on thousands of open source GitHub projects with at least 100 stars, so kind of using that as a metric for quality. Uh, it'll offer contextual-based code completion suggestions. AI coding help. News or not, Tom? Huh?
1: Nah. Checking a box. That's really all this is.
0: So you don't see any way that this is – I mean, we're going to get into the next story of where this is getting baked into, but this isn't any kind of differentiator. Will this be time-saving at least if it's if the AI is good enough?
1: It's no different than tab completion to me. I mean, it may be more intelligent tab completion, but come on. This, uh, well, you, you, one could make the joke that we haven't seen intelligence in the coding space yet. So, artificial or otherwise, I don't think it would really matter. And uh, if you would like to send all of your hate mail to me, uh, my email address is rich at com.
0: Yes, uh, that's Tom's favorite email address. All right, next up, Microsoft announced the private preview of Visual Studio Online based on the open source editor Visual Studio Code. Support for IntelliCode is built in, which, as Thomas told you, is not a big deal. Microsoft pitch it as a way to make tweaks, review pull requests, and such, not really as your main coding environment, though. i guess there's no reason you couldn't use it for that. Uh, yes, Azure DevOps used to be called a Visual Studio Online, but... That's all in the past now, so thank you, rebranding. Microsoft making an online IDE news or not, Tom?
1: I think this is actually bigger news than the IntelliCode thing, and the reason why is because Microsoft – you remember when Ballmer stood up on stage and was screaming developers at the top of his lungs, and we all thought he was nuts? I do seem to and yeah, it, 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 there may be a video on YouTube if you go look <laughs> for it. Uh, but Nadella really is building Microsoft around the developers. And and I've seen some chatter back and forth about this today from a lot of people who would consider themselves developers on other platforms going, wow, we really wish we had something like this. Um, specifically, Marco Arment, who develops for the Cupertino Fruit and Mobile Company. Um, it's interesting to see that Microsoft has kind of embraced this idea of, you know, giving developers what they need to get their job done on their platforms.
0: If only Satya would embrace the Balmer flop sweat. Next up, Microsoft plans to open source their QSharp compiler and quantum simulators, part of their quantum development kit. Microsoft hoping to build early quantum mindshare. News or not here, Tom?
1: I don't think this is news because I don't really think quantum computing has found its niche yet. Um, it's it's a boogeyman for cryptography, and that's really about it. Uh, great.
0: <laughs> I mean, but interesting that they're getting in early on this, wanting to put it in as many people's hands as possible, theoretically trying to maybe standardize a little bit around it.
1: The 650 pound quantum gorilla right now is Google. So unless they're willing to develop uh, some kind of Azure uh, qubit computer that they're going to offer for free to match Google, I think people are just it's going to be end up being like Kubernetes. Um, The standard is whatever Google decides it's going to be.
0: All right, next up, Microsoft launched a preview of an Azure-based platform to create training models for autonomous physical systems, a.k.a. robots. The back end is partially backed on assets acquired from the AI startup Bonsai and combines ML training tools with realistic simulations. Cloud robot training, news or not, Tom?
1: I don't think this is news because I don't see any cloud <laughs> robots coming out anytime soon, or real robots for that matter. Yes, we can spin cycles you know, training robots to mine Bitcoins or some stupidity like that, or we could fix the apps that are broken.
0: But I'm, I'm talking about for manufacturing systems, right? So like Toyota was getting in on this and using it for their assembly lines and that kind of stuff. Interesting that, you know, Microsoft being very open and, and kind of making this part of their overall cloud play. I mean, certainly there's a lot of customers that would be interested, right?
1: Uh, you would hope, if they're going to make this such a big tentpole of, of Build, that that people have been asking for this, but I, I don't know who those people are.
0: All right, next up, a preview of Azure IoT Edge with Kubernetes integration was also announced at Build. Container orchestration on the Edge. News or not, Tom?
1: Uh, it's Kubernetes support for Azure stuff and IoT news just because i (laughs) just because when that headline hits hacker news it will just get immediately voted to the top because it contains every word that hacker news loves
0: all right let's uh, try this one on for size microsoft announced it will start shipping a full linux kernel with windows 10 in june as part of the windows subsystem for linux part due. right now it's based on kernel 4.19 and will be updated with new stable updates as uh, new kernels are released windows and linux in a full-on rom-com relationship news or not tom (laughs)
1: news um so bill gates and steve Ballmer never played the game of does linux exist they just pretended it it didn't uh nadella has at least embraced this and you know integrated a linux kernel into windows and said okay we'll work with this um and i think it's because we we kind of okay i i I have some bad news for you guys um linux lost the desktop war i'm sorry um windows and os 10 well mac os now um have won it And Windows is saying, well, you know what? We can take what was good here and integrate it into what we do. Uh, That's a big deal when you think about it. This is dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria kind of levels of stuff
0: yeah kind of running, uh, running kernels uh, you know it, because the, what's crazy is they've already had like Ubuntu and, and other Linux distributions in the Windows App Store. basically just you can download them right now they were running uh, it wasn't quite emulation, but it, what the, you know the kernel wasn't running directly on the metal, and now this will directly enable that so you know just from someone mm-hmm. who wants to you know mess around with it makes it just that much easier, and that gives you that much more performance, which I think is really cool too yeah, exactly all right, uh, Tom. Microsoft launched a new command line app for Windows, creatively called Windows Terminal, where you can access PowerShell and the Windows subsystem for Linux that we just talked about. It has multiple tabs, tear away Windows, and full Unicord support, which, yes, means emojis. It also has GPU-accelerated text rendering, which is the most excited about text rendering I've ever been. Command line interface, getting some love, news or not, huh?
1: I think this is news because they're integrating PowerShell and Linux commands into one CLI, which means I don't have to fumble around and remember which command shows me the directory.
0: Yeah. Well, it also means that for my Linux subsystem, I can use my favorite command, tree, which just makes a big mess on my window, but looks really cool. All right. And finally, Tom, I had to squeeze this one in here. This is not Microsoft Build, but there was another event. Uh, Google I.O. has been happening uh, this one is from that. Uh, not a lot of, you know, kind of enterprise-y news or anything like that. But at Google I.O., Google announced that the cloud TPU version, two, or V2 and V3, are now available in beta. These are TPU pods. These contain up to 1,000 of Google's custom silicone tensor processing units, which can dramatically speed machine learning workloads up to 100 petaflops per second. And so the the kind of comparison here was that workloads that might take, you know, days, you know, a matter of days to perform could be done in a matter of minutes, theoretically, with these massive uh, pods of tensor processing units. Acclaimed Scalable Supercomputer for Machine Learning, that's Google's words, news or not, huh?
1: I think it's news just because Google's getting back into this market but one of the things we're seeing is is that supercomputers are not designed to just crunch things. They're not they're not the supercomputing clusters that we use to do weather modeling, for example. These are very specifically focused on ml applications. So you're not going to just be able to throw data at it. You've got to throw data at it in a very specific format to get out of it what you want to get out of it.
0: Yeah, these are like orders of magnitude less precise than what you would get. And that's that's the whole point of machine learning is you don't need that precision. You just need uh, like, a, like a super huge data set and uh, to be able to crunch that to get some meaningful uh, insights out of that. So interesting there. Um, speaking of supercomputers, kind of the first thing I want to talk to you about today, Tom, is the U.S. Department of Energy announced the world's fastest supercomputer to be called Frontier will be built by AMD and Cray for Oak Ridge National Laboratory by 2021. It's expected to reach 1.5 exaflops uh, which has uh, as much power as the next 160 supercomputers combined at least on the top 500 list right now and uh, is going to be used for uh, nuclear and climate research. So kind of uh, one of the classical examples that you just mentioned there that the TPU pods maybe aren't uh, definitely aren't ideally suited for. Uh, this is uh, uh this isn't going to be, of course, the first exascale uh, computer. We've already had a couple announced by Intel and Cray for the Argonne National Laboratory, and China is expected to be the first country with an exascale computer uh, for their Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, uh, going online in 2020. So probably the first one there uh, will be in China. The last time Andy was installed on the world's fastest supercomputer was in 2012 for the ORL, uh, excuse me, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory Titan, uh, which pushed 17.59 petaflops per second. So a mere seven years ago, uh, just to show you how fast. Supercomputing has kind of accelerated in uh, in speed there. AMD success with custom, uh, semi-custom silicon was cited as a deciding factor. Is this an underappreciated asset for the company going forward?
1: I, I think it is. And, and kind of going back to that conversation that we had, um, this is the kind of supercomputer that you're going to rent time on. Um, I need to do weather modeling for a super crazy forecast or hurricane prediction or things like that. And that's something we've actually seen recently where certain other – modeling software algorithms are kind of overtaking uh, some of the ones we're doing. So I can see having access to a huge computer like this at Oak Ridge is going to give uh, researchers the ability to just kind of toss some data at it and, uh, and and see what comes out of it. But the fact that it's running on AMD uh, is is a huge win for them because, you know, for a long time, they've wanted to get back into this market. And I think it's it's a good entry point
0: is it significant that in 7 years we basically hit 100 times the performance now i didn't look back to see what the you know the fastest supercomputer 7 years before that in uh, in 2005 or something like that would be but you know, a lot of the talk recently, at least in, you know, kind of the, the chip market, is that, you know, Moore's Law has definitely slowed down. We're not seeing, you know, the, the same speed advancements. We're seeing more refinements and that kind of stuff. Doesn't seem to be the case with supercomputers where we're just seeing just a huge explosion. Now, admittedly, this takes like two basketball courts. It has like, you know, 100 miles of wiring. It's, it's this crazy complex thing. It's not exactly a one-to-one with a, with a single chip design or something like that. But do you think this kind of growth is sustainable?
1: Um, I don't think it's sustainable in the long run, but I don't think it's intended to. And you you mentioned that, you know, Moore's law is kind of trailing off in the desktop processor market space, but not in supercomputing, because in supercomputing, we can parallelize those workloads. And quite honestly, I'm not building a supercomputer to run office, I'm building a supercomputer to crunch data.
0: Well, and it does get to the point that I think the the, kind of the next frontier, you know, it's been about recently about with silicon, it's been about adding cores, it's been about adding clock speed, maybe. Uh, certainly getting more performance per watt has been one of the dominant themes, you know, in, in that kind of development uh, over the last decade or more. Uh, but now, I think, especially, obviously, in the enterprise, where latency, speed of interconnects is becoming so much more important, and that's kind of the things that's powered a lot of, AMD. you know, the ability for AMD to cram a ton of cores into chips is because they have these really cool uh, interconnects within uh, you know, their Epic systems, their Threadripper on the consumer side, uh, chips, uh, super high-speed uh, interconnects, and that's really what Cray is bringing to the table here.
1: Mm -hmm. Pretty much.
0: So very cool. Um, Going from uh, something that you know, Tom, me and you will probably never interact with uh, in a supercomputer directly, to something that we interact with every day, WordPress's content, the content management system, I don't know if you know, uh, that's what CMS stands for there, Tom, is getting a new security features with version 5.2, including support for cryptographically signed updates, support for modern cryptographic libraries, a site health section in the admin panel backend, and features that let site admins access their backend in the case of catastrophic PHP errors, or so-called white screens of death. Uh, we've seen many screens of death in working with WordPress, at least I have, uh, over uh, my time working with it. Uh, Tom, we work with WordPress every day. Like I mentioned, how have signed updates not been a thing? And with something as pervasive as WordPress, how shocking – like how surprised were you when you saw that?
1: I, I it, You know, you see the thing you're like, oh. I didn't know they didn't already have that, but I kind of felt the same way when sites started turning on HTTPS all the time. <laughs> um, it, it, it What it boils down to is there, somebody needed to code this and somebody needed to authorize and test it to make sure it wasn't going to break anything. Maybe they had to set the groundwork in 5.0 so that this could actually happen. Um, I think what's starting to happen though, is a lot of people are starting to use those updates as vectors for persistent threats um to do some nefariousness and so by cryptographically signing them you can at least eliminate that now problem is this still doesn't fix their plugin problem and they've had a huge issue with that as of late i'm kind of interested to see if that's next on the agenda is all right now that we've signed all of our updates we're signing our our plugins next
0: yeah and that is i mean the fact that WordPress runs, what, like a third of all websites are, are based on WordPress and that it still seems – like when you get into that admin panel, it really still feels like you're in the Wild West. And and like you said, yeah, those those add-ons, I mean there's – I guess maybe I'm so used to working with something like an app store, uh, you know, uh, uh, from an Apple perspective or something like that where it's this super curated experience. You know that there's been certain levels of vetting and stuff like that. And you get in there and they're like, I don't know, it might work with version 5 or you need to downgrade to 4 and here's some weird shady reviews that may or may not be good. I mean, like, Amazon seems to have more reliable reviews than WordPress plugins. Mm So, just kind of weird that something so pervasive still feels so raw in a lot of ways. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of screwed-up add-ons, on May 3rd, Mozilla discovered that an expired intermediate signing certificate was causing Firefox extensions, themes, search engines, and language packs to stop working on Android and desktop versions of the browser. So just... Totally, completely not working. This impacted ad blockers and just a, a, just a ton of things that people use every day on browsers. Uh, Mozilla published a workaround for the developer and nightly builds, but not the stable releases on the 3rd, so the day that it was discovered, with a hotfix rolling out the next day. The fix requires the most recent version of Firefox to be effective, so users of older versions still do not have access to the extensions. For people that rely on legacy browser support, though, how bad is this, Tom? Tom?
1: It's bad. Whenever I was doing this work for, uh, you know, for a living, there are a lot of times when I had to keep very old browser versions running in VMs because it was the only browser that could access a specific UI or something like that. And now you're telling me that my plugins are going to be busted because somebody forgot to renew an intermediate signing certificate. If you're watching this show, you need to go right now, find out when your certificate expiration dates <laughs> are, and set yourself a calendar appointment for three weeks before that so you can start renewing those certificates so that they don't expire. This is the price you pay for being more secure is you have to be more vigilant. And it means you have to catch those certificates before they expire because if they don't, you're going to have a lot of problems.
0: Well, and this kind of compounds a problem of using an older browser, right? Because you could be, have something like NoScript installed, right? And that gives you some protection for running an older browser, which, you know, has security exploits and, you know, bugs in there that people could use. And by limiting the amount of code or using an ad block or something like that to, to take away some vectors for people to actually, you know, exploit using an older browser, now those are completely off the table. Um, so if you need that for some kind of development or, or you know some kind of work-related purpose, maybe you have it, – it, I don't think it's quite like IE where everyone had to keep IE6 because no one had updated their websites for you know 15 years or something like that. But I'm mm-hmm. sure there are a number of people that are impacted by this. So I'm hopeful that Mozilla doesn't completely leave them in the cold uh, going forward. I've seen some conspiracy theories that this is Mozilla's way of getting everyone to get up on the most stable releases. That seems to me like – especially for a company like Mozilla that relies on – you know kind of a community and, and goodwill to kind of be relevant against you know the, the likes of Microsoft and uh and Google and Apple that they wouldn't really burn down uh, all, all of that just to get everybody on a single release right
1: there are better ways to do it honestly and much less conspiracy theory oriented ones
0: Uh, In other uh, uh, depressing security news, uh, Catalan Sampano at ZDNet reports that a coordinated attack across Git hosting services, like uh, GitHub, you may have heard of it, Bitbucket, and GitLab is holding developer code for ransom. The attacks remove all source code and remove uh, recent commits from the repository and replace it with a ransom demand for 0.1 Bitcoin, which I think at the time of the reporting was around $575. Victims uh, have 10 days to make payment or face the threat of having their code published, uh, which... Would Be really bad if it was private. At least 392 repositories on GitHub alone have been affected. Uh, I haven't seen figures from GitLab, or I'm sorry, for um, Bitbucket or GitLab. Uh, and uh, according to GitLab Director of Security, Kathy Wang, the accounts were accessed by finding account passwords stored in plain text on a deployment of a related repository. That's a head smack. Uh, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, but plain text passwords.
1: Well, you're getting punished for being stupid. And and how many times have we had a story that basically pops up with um, <clears throat> yeah, a security vulnerability that could have been prevented if you had actually taken 13 seconds to figure out what was going on? I mean, we already know that there are bots running rampant on the Internet that are looking for AWS API keys. And the minute one gets published on GitHub, it gets snatched. Um, and, and we've seen from reports that it can take as little as 10 seconds for that to come up. You don't think that someone's not looking for passwords too? I mean, okay, sympathy. This is a new version of extortion, and it's kind of brilliant when you think about it. We're going to lock you out of your own GitHub, and then we're going to threaten to publish your stuff if you don't pay us. But come on. There should be a DLP solution somewhere in your organization that says, if you see anything that looks even remotely like a password, if you try to commit that anywhere outside of the organization – flag it and stop it because this, you know, this is something that you may not realize it just like that faster than Thanos can snap people out of existence. (laughs) Your password is out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, the good thing that I saw in the ZDNet reporting on this, at least uh, on the date they had reporting, I think this broke uh, on the 5th or the 6th or something like that, that uh, the the address that they were being directed to hadn't received any payments uh, since this had been reported. So it looks like people are either finding workarounds or or calling the bluff, I guess, on the ransom demands or that kind of stuff. Um, so, it you know. But yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I, I always think of, I guess, I always think of GitHub in terms of you know smaller individual developers, not that whole organization, especially on the private side. Right, are, are basically using this uh, for all of their code. So yeah, it really could be devastating. But again, this kind of gets to the the classic point, you know, on our continuing series of security issue or configuration user error. Um, this is the example of bad coding practices being exposed when at scale and when everybody can access everything right as opposed to it being mm-hmm. you know people assuming that it's being smaller and, and and you know less uh, less invasive yeah Alright, uh, speaking of plugins behaving badly, over the last 18 months, security researcher Victor Gazdag reported on security vulnerabilities on over 100 Jenkins plugins, many of which remain unpatched after contacting organizations and developers. To be fair, some of those were had you know kind of been out of development and weren't being actively maintained. Many vulnerabilities involve plugins that can save pass that save passwords in clear text and configuration files, rather than the automatically encrypted credentials.xml jenkins file. Uh, cross site request forgery, which uses connection tests to send credentials to an attacker or Server and server-side request forgery to map internal networks were also commonly found. These are third-party plugins, so not flaws inherent in Jenkins. Uh, but what can an open-source project like them do to help mitigate these risks, Tom? Mm,
1: blacklist the plugin until somebody fixes it. I mean, I mean, I, here, here's the thing, and this is a problem that we face in security all the time. Um, Mother May I only works if you can, if you have faith that the people who are doing the thing are going to stop if you ask nicely. And this is a problem with WordPress, this is a problem with Firefox and Safari, pretty much anything that you open up to use plugins, you are, you know, for lack of a better term and I really hate this, but you know you're kind of opening the kimono just a little bit hoping that people aren't going to sneak under there and do things they're not supposed to. And we've even seen it in like in programming where someone literally sold the development of their npm To a third party who then used it to, you know, uh, collect credentials and deliver things like deliver malware through a a sub channel and things like that. The solution to the problem, if people don't pick up the phone, you blacklist it, you lock it out from running. I promise you if you do that and somebody was monetizing that or if that was how they were well known, you're going to get a phone call about a day later going, "Um, I noticed that my plugin doesn't work anymore. And you can say, I noticed that you ignored the 37 emails (laughs) I sent you to fix it. Surprise, fix do, it, and we'll talk.
0: Do you think any hesitation to do that is because again, being an open source project? now Jenkins has wide uh, you know kind of industry acceptance or whatnot. so I, I don't think they have to really worry about this, but for some open source projects of kind of having the you know a community backlash against that for whatever reason these things can very quickly turn political or personal um, and kind of you know kind of create many uh, ten percent teapots, so to speak.
1: Oh, it absolutely does and you're always going to run the risk of pissing off somebody in the in the community because well my favorite plugin that hasn't been updated since 2006 now suddenly stops working because you got on your high and mighty horse to to prevent it from storing passwords and playing text. I promise you if there was a misbehaving kernel module, Linus Torvalds would waste zero time in blacklisting that developer from committing <laughs> any more things until he learned how to program. You, as the developer or as the group of developers that administer this open source project, have to be the ones to take a stand. You can guarantee that if Cisco or Microsoft or Dell or anybody else was taking code commits and it didn't pass muster, they'd be locked out. You guys have to be the ones that are the arbiters of whether or not this is going to fly.
0: Well, and, you know, part of you know part of the problem, I guess, with this is being open source, that the, the ecosystem for these plugins is kind of wide open, but... You know, as, you know, Victor Gazdag showed, you can look into the – you know, that's the that's the benefit, right, is that there's total – there's daylight for, you know, on all of these plugins. So you can look at the code and you can see how they're performing. And I think maybe the, the solution also is that if you're using these, you know, for your you know continuous integration or whatnot, that, you know, maybe it's incumbent on you. This is this guy was a 17-year-old security researcher. I found hundreds of, of problems with these plugins. You know, maybe it's incumbent upon larger organizations or, or any organizations that if you're going to be depending on these, you know – Look, you know, don't assume that uh, everything's okay, right? Right. All right, Tom. Uh, Well, I think we left vaguely on a not completely depressing note. Uh, Where can people find more of your great insights? You're always writing about uh, the security and the networking. Uh, Where can people find that?
1: Well, if you want to follow along with my personal writing, you can go over to NetworkingNerd.net. You can also follow me on Twitter as at NetworkingNerd. I've also been publishing a lot of stuff on gestaltit.com recently, uh, some security-related content, some networking-related content, and the occasional fun story about book reviews. Ooh. Uh, You can
0: uh, find uh, some of my stuff on gestaltit.com as well. You can find me on the Twitters at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R-Anthropology. If you spell out Mr., you won't find me. Maybe you'll find someone else, uh, and I'll yell at them for stealing my handle. Uh, We'll be back next Wednesday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, giving you the IT news that matters to you, or at least to me, and I hope it relates to you. Uh, But uh, until then, uh, until the next time we meet, remember, everybody... Have a super sparkly
1: day. And we're out. We're out and...